This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by the Arizona Theatre Company. For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up. This week is the beginning of Diwali, the Hindu festival of lights, one of the most popular and important holidays in India. Find out how Tucsonans of all faiths will be honoring this five-day event. Adiba Nelson talks with two of the producers of the animated show Mali of Denali. They're celebrating the launch of the show's second season on PBS Kids. Those stories and more are next on Arizona Spotlight. According to the lunar calendar, the five-day festival of lights called Diwali begins on November 4th. To better understand what this event symbolizes for people all over the world, I was put in contact with Sukanya Bhatt. For 17 years, she's been the owner and proprietor of the India Dukan Fine Food Market in Tucson. And I found out that she's a delight to talk to. Diwali is also known as a festival of lights. Uh, we light the lamps in front of our house, and uh, most of us have a altar. We keep it in front of the God also. So Diwali is celebrated by Hindus and Jains and Buddhists and uh, Sikhs also in India. So it's a victory of uh, good over evil, uh, light over darkness. The first day, uh, we celebrate it as a Dhanteras. It's the birthday of uh, Dhanvantari, father of medicine and Ayurveda. So uh, we pray for everybody's health. And the second day is called uh, Naraka Chaturdashi. Um, Lord Krishna fought the demon Narkasura and killed him. So we celebrate the victory. So people apply or aromatic oils in the morning and bathe with the ritualistic scrubs. In the evening, uh, uh, they wear new clothes, light lamps and diyas, um, and offer puja to Lord Krishna. And the third day is the Diwali day. Um, we do, again, the goddess of wealth, um, Lakshmi. Diwali is considered the main festive day uh, when people perform Lakshmi puja. This is the day Lord Rama returned to Ayodhya after conquering Ravana, the demon of uh, Alalpa. And we also worship uh, Lord Ganesha. He's the removal of obstacles. <laughs> the mover of obstacles, is that correct? Remover of obstacles. Yeah. My first introduction to South Asian culture was through an art exhibit that focused on Ganesha. And I learned <laughs> about him. I learned about the pantheon of uh, Hindu gods. And Ganesha is a wonderful character, isn't he? He's, he's yeah. loving and kind. What, what would you say about what this elephant-headed spirit represents to you? He's my dad's uh, favorite god. Uh, he <laughs> always told us he's the remover of obstacles. So that's why we worship him. Um, uh, when we do any puja, he's worshipped first. So very quickly, tell us what the fourth and fifth days of Diwali mean. Uh, the fourth day, we do the Govardhan Puja. Govardhan is a mountain. 
So we honor Lord Krishna again. Uh, we believe that on this day, Krishna saved the residents of Mathura from Lord Indra, who decides to punish them because people were not worshipping him. He's a god of uh, rain. I see. So did he, he use floods and torrential rain as punishment? Yeah. What did Lord Krishna do to save the people? Krishna lifted a mountain named Govardhan on his little finger to protect them. So all people <laughs> go under the mountain. This is a mythological story. Yes, but it's wonderful. And so how does the fifth day bring resolution to this cycle? Actually, um, this holiday is not celebrated uh, throughout India, but certain parts of India. This is called Bayuj. Um This day celebrates the brother and sister bond. Usually married sisters invite their brothers and uh, perform a tilak ceremony. Uh, They put a dot on their uh, brother's forehead uh, and pray for their long and happy life. So the sisters normally prepare a feast, you know, the favorite things for their brothers and uh, give them a gift. So the brother also in turn gives them a gift. So it's about building more connection and, and sustaining that family connection between siblings. Yeah, especially with the married sister. Sukanya, share with us a couple of memories you might have of celebrating Diwali as a young person in your home country and what that meant to you. Yeah, we celebrated uh, Diwali as a family. Um, I helped my mom cook uh, our family favorite uh, savories, salty snacks, sweets and things like that. And when she was lighting lamps, I would go and help her and I would uh, burn sparklers and things like that. Uh, with my siblings, and then um, as a part of uh, uh, the puja also, when my parents were performing. So tell me, Sukanya, what kind of performance do people do? You mentioned your family doing some, and the one attendance that I've made in Tucson of Diwali, I saw dances, poetry recitals, just a celebration of South Indian culture. Yeah. um, See, India is a secular country. And like uh, I told you earlier, the puja, the rituals and traditions uh, changes uh, place to place. Uh, That's why when the Indian Association celebrates uh, Diwali, they don't follow any ritualistic part of it, uh, just the cultural part of it. The local Indian kids uh, perform uh, Bollywood numbers, uh, classical dance, (laughs) songs and things like that. Because these kids uh, learn Indian classical and dance from local teachers, so they get the opportunity um, to showcase their talent. I think what you're saying, Sukanya, is that regardless of your faith or how much you might believe in mythological stories, which form the basis for our different cultures, that Diwali is a inclusive event, that people of all faiths are welcome. Yeah. Indians are known for their hospitality. There is a, a hymn called Matra Devo Bhava, Pitra Devo Bhava, Acharya Devo Bhava, Atiti Devo Bhava. The last line uh, says that uh, guests are akin to God. So whenever the guests come, we treat them as some kind of divinity. So uh, any functions or, uh, you know, festival like this, marriages or social gatherings also, uh, we welcome guests to be a part of our celebration. Can you tell our listeners about ways that they might connect to celebrate Diwali this year? There are two celebrations in Tucson this year. Uh, one is the International Society of uh, Krishna Consciousness, popularly known as Govindas of Tucson. Uh, 
It is on Friday, November 5th. They start the program at uh, 6 o'clock and it goes on till 8.30 p.m. Uh, people can go and join there. It's a free program and they provide a cultural program as well as food. And there is uh, religious activities also. And India Society of Southern Arizona is celebrating Diwali on uh, Saturday, November 20th. Their program starts at 5 o'clock. Again, there will be cultural program and food, and uh, um, there uh, there will be a performance by local kids. Uh, they are going to sing, dance, and uh, they are providing a DJ. There will be a dance floor once people are done with their food, so they can go and enjoy uh, Diwali this year. And uh, it is uh, celebrated at uh, Tucson Chinese Cultural Center, which is uh, located on uh, 2288 River Road. They are accommodating 200 people, um, so it's a first come first uh, base. So if they want to purchase the ticket. Uh, we are uh, we have the tickets at the store, uh, but we accept only cash and check on behalf of the uh, association. Since we're talking right now to our audience, I wonder if there's something about the South Asian community in Tucson that you would really like to share with the broader community. What do you want to say about? how South Asians live and contribute in Tucson that some people may not realize? Indians are providing service in many areas here. Uh, There are school teachers, uh, software engineers, doctors, and uh, engineers. And we have uh, Indian grocery stores in Tucson. So we provide uh, Indian food. um, And there are local restaurants. Uh, They provide uh, healthy Indian food to the community. You can find Indians in pretty much all the sectors of uh, local economy. Many thanks to Sakanya Bhatt, the proprietor of the India Dukan Fine Food Market on Campbell, just south of Glen. There is some more information about the local events she mentioned on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Hey everyone, it's me, Molly! Molly, up in That may be a familiar voice to many viewers of PBS Kids. In 2019, the animated Molly of Denali became the first nationally distributed children's program to feature Native American and Alaska Native lead characters. The cast and crew are now celebrating the start of the second season of the show on PBS Kids. Next, Adiba Nelson talks with two of the show's producers about the importance of incorporating Native voices in every aspect of the show, from behind the scenes to on screen. Can I have you both individually introduce yourselves? Sure. My name is Yeti Bay Evans, and I'm the creative producer for Molly of Denali. I am Atna Athabaskan from the village of Mentasta, Alaska, which is near the Canadian border. And today I am joining you from Fairbanks, Alaska, which is the traditional homeland of the Tanana Diné people who stewarded and took care of this place since time immemorial. Hi, I'm Dorothea Gillum, and I'm the executive producer of Molly of Denali, and I am speaking to you from my home office in Lexington, Mass., which is the traditional homelands of the Massachusetts and Wampanoag peoples. Why do you think it's so important for children to get an understanding of Native American and Alaska Native culture? 
you all tackle some very real issues and situations that Native American children and Alaska Native children might find themselves in, or children of um, color in general. I believe it was the season opener for season two, there was um, discussion about racism. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, that is uh, one of my favorite episodes, Molly and Elizabeth. In the story, we start off uh, with Molly and Tui meeting some tourists who uh, wanted to receive a guide uh, throughout the land of Kaya, and they were expecting a certain type of native that had feathers and traditional clothing on, and they were shocked to learn that Molly and Tui didn't fit into their preconceived idea and Molly and Tui, you know, had to work on what that experience was like for them. And Molly's mom and her grandpa Nat helped them think about how it was wrong, why it was wrong, and shared about Elizabeth Paratrovich, who stood up in the 1940s for civil rights as Alaska Natives and went in front of the territorial legislature at the time in front of a mostly Caucasian male group and advocated for our rights as indigenous people, that there should no longer be segregation and racism occurring. And so Governor Gruning signed into law in 1945, the first anti-discrimination act here in the United States. And at the end of the show, it's really beautiful because Molly and Tui, you know, talk to the tourists again in a very graceful and educational way that shares that their feelings were hurt and that they have an amazing multicultural background because uh, they come from um, different cultures here in Alaska and that it's okay to be who they are and they don't have to always wear traditional clothing in order to be Alaska Native, culture isn't static. It's always growing, always evolving. And in the interstitial, we hear from several children throughout Alaska who talk about um, their reflections on Molly and Elizabeth and uh, really encourage other kids that if they're experiencing racism or discrimination, that they should speak up. And I think it's a beautiful way to talk about some really challenging pieces of our life and not just sweep it under the rug, but bring it to the forefront and do it in a good way. I mean, I just wanted to also add that um, research shows that kids start forming their sense of sort of racial and ethnic identity when they're three and four years old. This is an important topic for kids and, you know, something that they are sort of exploring and discovering and learning about. And the thing that Molly and Tui learn in the end is to be proud of who they are and that no one else can define you. You all bring that to the forefront. I feel like in every episode there is um, an, an opportunity for Molly and her friends to be proud of themselves. And I love that my daughter gets to see that. How do you balance the heavier topics, if you will, with the fun that Molly and Tui and her friends have? Like, how important is fun to your creative formula of 
educating, empowering, but also keeping kids engaged with like the fun silliness? It's not important at all. <laughs> I was like, wait, did I lose you? <laughs> wait a I'm just kidding. Yes, it all starts with engagement and fun and humor and adventure. That's very important because we, we can't broach any subject unless we engage kids. And um, also we want to reflect, you know, kids' experience, which is a lot about play and, you know, having surprising adventures. And, you know, we've got tons of great stories that are actually just about creating a butterfly garden or um, training a puppy or going on a overnight trip with your basketball team. So there's, there's lots of topics that are just, just fun and relatable for all kids. Um, and this is for both of you. Uh, what, in your own words, would you say is a dream that you have for the future for Molly of Denali? That we continue to have more seasons, more opportunities to share about Alaska Native cultures, Indigenous people, and that it also connects um, beyond PBS into uh, the larger realm of media as we are starting to see Many Indigenous voices are being sought after to be included in production teams. And I really hope that our audience, you know, start to understand and develop a broader perspective of who Indigenous peoples are, where we've come from, and that we're still here thriving and great contributors to the health and, and well-being of our collective society I'm really excited to continue to be able to share a positive message with our Indigenous children and families that we do matter. Our ways of being are important. They're beautiful and they're successful. And it's okay to redefine what that term success is within um, you know, the broader cultures of human people. How about you, Dorothea? Yeah, you say covered a lot of my dream, I got to say. Thank you. (laughs) My dream also is to expand on our mission, represent even more Indigenous cultures within and possibly beyond Alaska so that we, you know, continue to uh, share with audiences the incredible richness of these various cultures and to give these kids in the audience who are of those cultures an opportunity to see themselves reflected on screen. My guests were Dorothea Gillum and Yedebe Evans, executive and creative producers of Molly of Denali. You can watch Molly of Denali weekdays at 7 a.m. on PBS 6 and again at 1 p.m. or 6 p.m. on PBS Kids. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Adiba Nelson. If you travel today to the region around Pecos, Texas, you'll find several historic reminders about a very eccentric character from the tail end of the era called the Old West. It's not always easy to separate the tall from the tail when we're talking about the life and times of Judge Roy Bean, but that didn't stop Hollywood filmmakers from offering up their own versions and mostly shooting those films right here around Tucson. Here's Chris DeShiel. One of the biggest industries of the American West was myth-making. The demand for sensational stories about cowboys and outlaws 
Produce a seemingly endless supply of exaggerated newspaper accounts, Wild West shows, stories, plays, dime novels, and eventually movies. One of the minor historical figures that ended up a legend was Roy Bean, a Kentucky-born gunrunner and small-time crook who, in 1882, somehow got himself appointed Justice of the Peace in a tiny village near the Rio Grande in West Texas. He owned a saloon there and administered the law while serving drinks, eventually getting a reputation as a hanging judge, subject to extremely arbitrary whims. That, and his often stated affection for the beautiful English actress Lily Langtree, was enough to foster the colorful myth of Judge Roy Bean. A short story about Bean by Stuart Lake, a writer already well known for promoting the Wyatt Earp legend, caught the attention of someone at the Goldwyn Studios. Goldwyn bought the rights and assigned its top director, William Wyler, to make a film about him in 1940 called The Westerner. The movie begins against the background of one of the classic Western themes, ranchers versus homesteaders. As usual, the cattlemen are the bad guys, and Judge Bean, played by Walter Brennan, acts as their ally in trying to force the farmers off the land. Jane Matthews, played by Doris Davenport, is the daughter of the upright spokesman for the homesteaders, and the love interest for Cole Harden, played by Gary Cooper, mistakenly identified as a horse thief and brought before the judge to be tried and hanged. The wordplay between Brennan and Cooper is a brilliant achievement by the screenwriters Joe Swirling and Niven Bush. And Cooper, who gets top billing as the star of the film, wisely lets Brennan dominate their scenes together. The outrageous sequence in which Cole is put on trial, literally at the bar, includes testimony by the horse that he supposedly stole, nodding along while the owner identifies Cole as the thief. While the jury goes off for drinks in preparation for the inevitable guilty verdict, Cole notices a poster of Lily Langtree and saves his neck by claiming to be her close friend and promising to give Bean a lock of her hair that he owns if they delay the hanging. The Westerner was shot in many locations around Tucson, including what is now Green Valley. You can see the Santa Rita Mountains in a few of the shots. It's a highly entertaining film, and it's also pure fiction, even changing the circumstances of Bean's death to fit the story. Walter Brennan is most well-known for playing irascible, good-hearted sidekicks, but in this performance, which earned him his third Oscar for supporting actor, he plays a mean, narrow-minded bigot albeit vulnerable in a soft spot for the actress Langtree. After this movie, Roy Bean's reputation as an eccentric hanging judge was now secure. This here's a big country. Yeah, but it ain't big enough for cattlemen and homesteaders, and it never will be. Now clear out of here. All right, Bean. We're going. We're going back to build our fences. If you do, you better build coffins along with them. Over three decades later, John Huston and screenwriter John Milius brought Bean back to life in The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, released in 1972. Paul Newman plays the judge from his beginnings, establishing his peculiar brand of justice in West Texas, through his marriage to a Mexican teenager played by Victoria Principal in her very first role, to his being pushed out of power by a sleazy banker played by Roddy McDowell, only to return later for vengeance with the help of Bean's daughter played by Jacqueline Bissett. Houston himself shows up as a mountain man who presents Bean with a trained bear named Zachary Taylor. Scenes with Paul Newman and this bear are among the film's more whimsical touches. Hey, what are you doing there in the middle of nowhere, digging a hole? My grave! When that wheel come off my wagon, I took it for a sign. 
This here's my dying ground. Where are you coming from? Lived in the mountains most of my days. I was a mountain man. Knew Jim Bridger, Kip Carson, Liver Eaton Johnson. He was a good fellow when he started out. Let things get to him, though. Went bad up in the winters. Yeah, a man will do that. What's your name, mister? I'm Grizzly Adams. Direct descendant of John Quincy Adams, sixth president of the United States. His blood is in me. But I went wild as a youth and run away to the mountains. Good life, free life, but cold. So cold, I'd go to the bars in winter and lie up with them in their cave. That's why I'm known as Grizzly. I cohabitated with the bars. What are you doing in Vinegaroon? All my life I've been cold. Now I come south to die where it's warm. Well, it's warm here. But there'll be no illegal dying. The only people that die in my town are those that I shoot or hang. Get along with you. Also hilarious is a brief appearance by Stacy Keach as Bad Bob, an insane albino gunman who wants to fight Roy Bean in a duel. Come on, Mino! Come on, Meanie! Come and get it! I'm ready for you, Mino! Here we see that by the 1970s, Roy Bean was ready to be drafted into the role of culture rebel and outsider. The film's mildly comic tone allows us to overlook Bean's cruelty and injustice and see him as just a lovable eccentric, a relic from the old days when conventional society hadn't yet closed in to confine people within the prison of social morality. The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean was shot mostly at the old Tucson studios and various other locations around the city. A few scenes were shot in Douglas. So, who was Roy Bean, really? Despite the legend, there's little evidence that he was a hanging judge. Only two death sentences can be traced to him, and in one of them, the prisoner escaped. His marriage to a Mexican child bride happened years earlier. He abused her and abandoned her before going to Texas. Most of the cases before his court were settled not by hanging, but by fines. He did, however, pocket all the money himself. He died in his bed after some binge drinking in 1903. But Lily Langtree did show up at his saloon after his death and was given a tour, just as in the John Huston film. In one of John Ford's westerns, a character says, When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. The prosaic facts of Judge Roy Bean's life and career were turned into a legend that illustrates the corrupt and amoral nature of law in the Old West. And why not? It's a hell of a good story. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Krista Scheel. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's interim news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Thank you to Arizona Theatre Company for their support of Arizona Public Media.